Welcome back to Inside the Pastor's Study. My name is Pastor Jeremy. And I'm Pastor George. And uh, we're here to give you the, uh, the answer to the question, what do pastors talk about when they're not uh, talking well into my lunchtime on a Sunday morning? So we, uh, you know, one of the conversations that pastors have uh, throughout the week, some of the things that they, uh, they think through and share, uh, we, we, uh, we have been on a kick. We, we talk about some of the things that are in the vision of the podcast down the road, like deeper insight into sermons and studies, and, um, and uh, that material is coming, down the, coming eventually. Uh, and uh, so, so stay tuned down the road for those things. But we've been working through a bit of church history over these last several episodes because we wanted to answer the question, why can't we all just get along as churches? Why are there so many different denominations? Why does it seem like uh, we're all very different, but at the same time all very much the same? And uh, why, why is it that like, there are so many different Christians out there? Um, and can't we all, since we're all going to heaven someday and we all are sharing eternity together, why don't we look like that now? And, and so we've been tracing some of the, the narrative of uh, the American, the American Church, the Protestant Church, particularly because we are Protestants, uh, but we've been tracing the American Church and how it's developed and why we are where we are. Because we think that if we can figure out where we are, why we're here, and why we've gotten to this place, that we have better answers for where do we go uh, down the road. So that's where we're at, and uh, we've been talking through things like the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, and some of the movements that of uh, the, the Christian faith that have happened around the Civil War era, and you can check those out in previous podcasts. And uh, we're going to move into the, the next era uh, of the next big shakeup in American Christianity next. Um, but we also want to encourage you, before we get into that, to, to uh, head over to our Facebook page. It's the same title, Inside the Pastor's Study. Uh, like that page, uh, drop a note in there, introduce yourself as a listener, talk about some of the things that you've appreciated, some of the questions you might have. And if you have some of those questions that are, are helpful for conversation, uh, we might uh, launch into those in a future study. So, uh, so check into that podcast and uh, podcast page and, and join us. And then share us. Uh, it's always a big help to share the podcast with a friend. Uh, so yeah, so all of the, uh, the intro aside... Where are we now? We, we've talked through, we were just finishing up the Civil War and talking about the late 1870s, I think is about where we got to. Right, right. Um, and then uh, the American, the, the America as a whole is in this state of upheaval and change as they heal from the Civil War. Uh, the South is trying to figure out how to rebuild. The North has developed this incredible, like, mechanized society and an industrial society. Um, and largely because of the time in world history, but also because of the war need. And, and then the West is this new frontier of expansion, and we are, we are plunging deeper and deeper into the West, um, just continuing to explore and, and unlock the rest of the uh, North American continent. So some of the thing, those are some of the things that are happening, uh, but a lot's happening in the church also. Right. I mean, the, uh, the history books will call this the American Golden Age, and it's uh, the time of, of huge industrialization. It's the time of uh, uh, the robber barons, as they're often called. It's the age of the Goulds and the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and, and, and all of those huge expansions of industry. And, uh, and it's, it's just an amazing moment. I mean, in 1876, at the Centennial Exhibition, for example, uh, you have uh, people like Alexander Graham Bell who's just developed the telephone, and you have Andrew Carnegie, and 
You have, uh, well, you also have the birth of the hot dog here in the United States, which mm. is now theirs. A great That's an thing. important yeah. day in history. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, you have all of those things happening in the 1870s, and they do affect the church. I mean, you have this ongoing revival concept, because revivalism doesn't lose its, its luster just because you lose Moody. Uh, revivalism continues. It changes music. It, uh, it affects life. I think a lot of us here in the Northeast, uh, particularly and especially the industrialized Northeast, uh, we forget that America's a frontier in the 1870s. I mean, you you still have you still have Custer being massacred at the Little Bighorn in the 1870s. You still have you still have uh, wagons, dirt roads, all of those things, and and dysentery as you travel the Oregon Trail. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So all of those things are working there in the, in the West and in the Midwest. And revivals are important because um, I remember talking to a, a sweet lady in, one of, in my church in Ohio. Um, she was 90, and this was probably 1990. And she was talking about how when she was a little girl, she rode the yellow school wagon to, to school, hmm. uh, which I think was hilarious that the, the wagons were painted yellow and now the buses were painted yellow. But she also told us about, she also was telling me about how revivals in southern Ohio worked, how the roads are dirt, and because the dirt roads, they would get muddy, they would get clogged uh, in the fall when the rains came, and then when the snow would come, it would be nearly impossible to travel. So church attendance dropped off precipitously from October through, say, March. And then in March, the churches would have revival meetings. They would invite in a revival speaker, and the objective was to just try to get people back to church for the church season. Hmm. I remember that church in Ohio, and they still had that problem. I think we had like a, a famous year of snow, and they had like the lone pickup truck with a plow on it, yeah. trying to cover the roads with yeah. like salt. Yeah, that was. They're still yeah. struggling with that one, I think. Yeah, they also had flood issues. And yeah, yeah, it was interesting place to live. It was. It yeah. really was. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, but the other in, the other interesting inclusion in the 1870s, and we, and we need to talk about this before we jump into a, another church issue, and, and that is the, the entire immigration model that reaches the United States in the 1870s. Um, you know, prior to 1870, immigration was a state issue. So if you landed in uh, New York City, the city of New York or the state of New York had the responsibility of processing you as an immigrant. If you, if you landed in Texas, the Texas state had the responsibility. In the 1870s, the United States takes over immigration. That's the whole birth of Ellis Island. And so we have a little bit of a better record of what was going on as far as immigration is concerned. But the 1870s sees this massive influx of uh, new people into the United States. They're predominantly Irish, Italian, Polish, uh, Czechoslovakian. A key uniting ingredient is that they're all Catholic. Now, that's significant on a church basis because while there is Catholicism in the United States prior to the 1870s, there is very little Catholicism. Yeah, and a lot of that was really um, concentrated Catholicism, right? It was in you know in Maryland and in you know down Florida, Georgia, that area. But there were entire states that had very little 
of that spread because you know, sure. families tend to stay together at this point in history. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, your cities, Boston, New York City, you got a lot of Irish immigrants in those two cities uh, prior to 1870, but it, it explodes. It just explodes. The, the Irish influx, uh, obviously the, you know, the Swedish influx that comes in the 1880s, which moves Lutheranism uh, to the Midwest, all of those ideas are, are kind of contrary to American Protestantism, which some of us are wrestling with that idea of how can Catholicism be be so wrong or so not wrong. I don't want to use that word, but so. Well, I mean, there was a time though where that is definitely the word that gets used. Yes, right. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think right now and where we are in church history, there are is probably one of the healthiest relationships between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church in a long, long and, time. And so um, uh, there are there are, there are people that I would you know point to as Catholic friends who I am confident they know Jesus and 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 they they even would I would even say that the church they go to is is decent even though we have some major disagreements. Um, but to make that statement as a Protestant pastor thirty years ago even would get me in a lot of trouble with my yeah, congregation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So. So yeah, I mean it, it it felt very wrong in Protestant in the Protestant USA to have Catholicism coming in. And so there's two responses to that and, and they're they're interesting. One of those responses is a doctrine that I that is or a concept called henotheism and that has nothing to do with chickens. Hmm, that's too right? bad. Um, henotheism is the idea that I adopt the religion of the geography that I live in. Uh, you see it in the Old Testament. You yeah, see, sure. Yeah, I mean when the uh, the Samaritans are researching when 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 Assyria takes a group of people and puts them in uh, the land of Israel, the ten northern tribes, they say to those people, uh, "So here's your land. Oh, and this is your God. Now you worship Yahweh." And that's the birth of the Samaritans mm -hmm. uh, in in the northern kingdom, and, and there are rejected people because while they are supposedly worshipers of Yahweh, they aren't they are not genetically Jewish, so that's right. why they're hated. So you do have some henotheism. You have some people who come into the United States and they say to themselves, I'm you know, I'm I'm Catholic. I grew up in Ireland or I grew up in I grew up in the coal country of Poland. Um, and they come into the United States and they realize that if they're going to get anywhere in these in this country, they need to convert. And so you have a large conversion number uh, of those Catholics who are just saying, I'm, I'm going to convert to get along. Hmm. Right? But then you also have the power of the revival meeting and the power of the Protestant church to actually move people to say, wow, I, I need to trust Christ as my Savior. Right. There's life here that wasn't in my parish in my past experience. So all of that change is happening for a lot of people. They... They have the change of a new culture and a new country, and they're also seeing this uh, spiritual revival happening that taps into man's basic need to know his Savior. And, and so I, there's a lot of that conversion happening at the time because people are, are interacting with the Holy Spirit perhaps for the first time, even though they've grown up in a religious context. Right, exactly, exactly. And perhaps even a third line of thought here, and that is, we have a lot of people who have been who have 
been raised in a very structured and very restrictive form of religion. And I think that in the 1870s and the 1880s, you begin to see a rebellion against all religion. Hmm. That's not just Catholicism. That can be Protestantism, too. But Is that a product of um, like the post-war depression that kind of comes in the culture, mm. you think? Or? Oh, the post-Civil War yeah. depression? Yeah, uh, yeah. Like people just start to, I mean, you see that after. Like It seems like some wars in history, there's a resurgence of faith, and then others, there is a a drop-off because of right. what and people have been through. A civil War was more of a resurgence of faith, which mm. was a great model. Um, but I'd, I'd, I would question what you would see, for example, in cities. The, the U.S. is a funny place because what happens in our urban communities is not, is not necessarily what's happening in the rest of the country. So mm. if you isolate New York City or you isolate Los Angeles, you're seeing one aspect of American culture, and, and even in those days, even in the 1870s, you're seeing one aspect of American culture, while the broader American culture in the 50 states is far more distinct. Hmm. So you may have some of that. Um, y you may have some of that early. Um, uh, atheism agnosticism creeping in especially in the cities but not necessarily in the in in the broader culture but you do have what you do have though is it, it creates it, it creates a level of interest right where we're, we've got greater revivals we're seeing more people getting saved we're seeing larger churches growing but we're also seeing an inclusion of people who just they just do not know what it is that they believe they've adopted to the national culture, the national religion. So if, if they actually were asked, what does it mean to be a Baptist, Presbyterian? What does it mean to be a Protestant? What does it mean to have Jesus as your Savior? You may be talking about a language that is just totally unknown. It's just more of an adaptation to, I, I'm going to go to this church now. Hmm. Which I feel like is kind of our culture now. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's the foundations for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, you could probably poll a lot of people going to Protestant churches in the United States right now and ask them what makes their denomination unique from all others, and they wouldn't have a good answer. Right, absolutely. Because they've connected with a particular faith body, but not necessarily, with, without necessarily knowing the the background behind why that body exists. Exactly. Well, you know, that's one of those distinctions that you see in uh, Catholicism, and you also see it in uh, Presbyterianism. And both of those groups catechize their young. So uh, I know we have a Sunday school program that here at Marsh. Beautiful. Yeah, doesn't it? I mean, we have a Sunday school program here at Marsh. We call it Marsh Kids, and it's designed uh, to teach our children uh, what the Bible says and uh, what, you know, we teach Bible stories and so on. And, and out of those Bible stories, what comes from, you know, how to apply them and make and un gain an understanding of faith. Whereas in, in Catholicism and Presbyterianism, you have a series of questions and answers. And the objectives there are to teach, yes, faith, but also to teach the function and structure of the church. Sure. You're getting a, like a theology 101 primer as 
as a young child in a churchology what is that word well, the actual it, official word for that yeah, ecclesiology remember. that's it ecclesiology yeah, it was it was it was back in the dusty bin yeah yeah, um, yeah. so they're getting yeah. more of that as as children yeah it's more of a so uh, you know from a seminary point of view just conversation mm-hmm. so you're you're getting a systematic right theology as opposed to a biblical theology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, define those terms for people. Systematic theology is when I go through the Bible and I identify a very strong list of specific doctrines that run throughout the Scripture, and then what I do is I understand and develop those, those doctrines on how they're taught through the Scripture, um, and, and I base a lot of that on my life, whereas a... Right, because you, so, you know, for those of you, like... You, you, maybe you've been there. You've read a Grudem or Ryrie or one of those one of those classics that kind of lists out like, hey, this is what salvation is, and here are all the verses and passages that support it. This is what we believe about hell. This is what we believe about angels. This is what we believe about the church, and you create those systems and silos. And exactly. So, like, biblical theology then is to be able to look at scripture as a, as a complete work from God, as a message from God and be able to like, okay, John is writing about this. Yes. And when Paul writes, this is what he's talking about. And when you read this, when you read the prophets, this is what they're talking about. So that's biblical theology. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you identify something called progressivism, Mm -hmm. uh, which says that uh, the understanding that Abraham, for example, had about salvation uh, is far different from the understanding that John has about salvation, and yet it's both, it's both salvation. They, they both understand enough about salvation in God's progressive expression and revelation mm-hmm. to, uh, to save them. So, so this isn't to ding one side or the other, just to clarify what those two perspectives are. And yeah, I, would actually say, both. I would actually say as a pastor, you need both of those. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You need to know why the author you're reading says what they say. And you also need to know what the larger systems of theology are. And uh, but I think so. And but I think some churches kind of default to one side or the other. Right. And, right. and some churches are great at systematic theology, you know, like like these catechized um, movements. And other churches are, are better at biblical theology where they're breaking apart a Bible verse or, or um, a passage and, and unlocking uh, what God has to say, but it, I think a good Bible student knows both of those things. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and several others too. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean, those those are just two ways of approaching Scripture, and then there are uh, there are others that are are necessary uh, for developing a, a full understanding of of what you're looking at. It's, Man, it sounds like a lot of future podcast material there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of like I, I guess it would be you know, cooking, cooking illustration, right? If I have a pound of ground beef, mm-hmm. what am I going to turn that pound of ground beef into? You know, I can, I can roll it up and make it meatballs. Um, I, can, uh, I can patty it out and make hamburgers. I can crush it out and make chili. Uh, all of those things come from that same ground beef. It's just a matter of how I'm going to prepare it. Prepare it. And then an interesting thing happens around the turn of the century, around that 1900 date, when 
when all of this is going, and it happens out west. It, it, it seems like every one of these revivals tend to move... Toward the frontier? Yes. Wherever that happens to be? Yeah, yeah. And now the frontier is the southwest. It's places like Texas and Arizona uh, and California. Mm-hmm. And, and now we have a new, a new movement of sorts that springs up and a new revival base that springs up. And in history, they call this the holiness movement. I've seen some people call this the fourth great, the fourth great awakening. Hmm. Um, but I, I think of it, I think of it as a holiness movement because I, I really don't think that it's as evangelistic as a an awakening is. Um, I really draw the line at those two great awakenings and a need for a third, and the rest is just the growth of revivals within the second great awakening. But the holiness movement springs up um, in. 1890, 1900, um, and really gets its feet under it uh, in the 1910s. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the holiness movement I, 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 it begins, it really springs up out of Wesleyanism, springs up out of the Methodist Church. Um, almost every... That makes sense. Almost every charismatic church in the United States has its foundations in the Methodist Church in the United States. And it's because within Wesleyan doctrine, within the Wesleyan, uh, Charles Wesley, uh, or excuse me, John Wesley, the, the founder, if you will, of the Methodist Church movement, within that movement, there is something called the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. Right, yes. Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you have a conversation, so, you know, this is one of those tough conversations that you have with people, and that is that, um, and, and where we struggle in communicating the Christian message, and that is, that there are people who think that one can that you can become sinlessly perfect. That as Christians we should be sinless. And uh, you know, I, I can tell you, I, I don't meet that model, and I don't think that the Bible is very. I don't think that the Bible supports that idea. But it's the idea that you know, if if God has taken my sins away, then I should be sinless, right? You would think. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the doctrine of Christian perfectionism exists within Wesleyan doctrine. It's just not talked about a lot for about 20, 30 years as the Methodist Church becomes the most, uh, the most ubiquitous church in the United States. It, the Methodist Church, uh, beginning in like 1860 and, and running all the way through the 1950s, the Methodist Church is the largest single denomination in the United States. And it's because of circuit writing. It's because of that whole philosophy of, of small congregations. There's a Methodist church in every single town in the United States. And it's because of that outreach focus. So within their doctrine is this doctrine of Christian perfectionism, which obviously if you're not, I mean, when you sin, you know what that means. It's time to get saved again. Exactly. So, so there, is, there is this issue of how do I stay holy? And that holiness doctrine is what uh, is what moves it. It's that revival of Christian perfectionism. And there's a woman named Phoebe Palmer um, who actually is foundational in that. She and and several other uh, Methodist pastors uh, begin to pray through this idea of what it means to be uh, perfect in Christ. Uh, and they decide that that perfection in Christ needs to come by asking for a special work of God 
to sanctify and cleanse the person. It's not just that you get saved, but you also have to get cleansed as well. And in the heart of that cleansing idea comes this idea of uh, tongue speaking. Hmm. And, um, and so there's, a, there's this idea of tongue speaking that is an old doctrine. Um, it's not, you know, some of my really strong fundamentalist friends think that it just sprang up in the holiness movement, and it didn't. Um, so is this an op- is this? Let's see if I can map this out and see if it makes uh, This is how it makes sense in my head, and you can correct me. So you, every time you sin, you need, a, you need a cleansing or a salvation. And this is almost Old Testament-like, right? Right. You, know, you need to present the lamb uh, for, um, for the absolution of sin. And so with that comes a, a renewal of heart and a, a reigniting of somebody's passion for the Lord. Um, but there also comes this point where you kind of need to prove it to your community is that is that this and, yeah. and so out of that comes this um recognition of a sign of a sign of the movement of the holy spirit that has existed from the very beginning um but it also works really well to kind of prove that yes i have the holy spirit in me because here is my um tangible reaction to the movement of the holy spirit my outward sign yeah of an inward cleansing right. yes absolutely and that's that's key because uh, a group of men uh, led, by, uh, led by William Seymour, they meet in uh, the Azusa Street Mission, and they pray for seven days that, they would, that God would bring cleansing to their lives. And, uh, you know, according to their, according to their memoirs, um, after that seven days of prayer, um, they felt an electricity in the room, they said, and they, they all fell out of their chairs and started speaking in tongues. And they believed that that was the Holy Spirit cleansing them of their sin, making them spiritually perfect. Hmm. So the holiness movement springs up, right, from Phoebe Palmer. And then William Seymour takes it another step and says... This, this is how I know. I've had this experience, and this is how I know that the Holy Spirit is doing a great work. Exactly, exactly. So while Palmer begins with the idea of I need to pursue sinless perfectionism in my life, and that actually springs out and forms a whole raft of churches, like uh, the Wesleyan Church in America uh, is, is a part of that. The Free Methodist Church in the South is a part of that. The... Um, uh, here's here's one that you probably know, the Christian or the excuse me the the Church of the Nazarene mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is one of those where uh, I'm uh, I'm constantly coming back to have that experience of cleansing until the day that I actually get to this point where I'm no longer a sinner. Goodness, it almost sounds Buddhist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard, and and I you know I don't want to be harsh because you know here's. I have lots of friends in uh, the Church of the Nazarene and, uh, you know, have had friends that have been Church of God, uh, you know, who are in that line too. Um, another, another group uh, that will spring out of this a little later is the Christian Missionary Alliance, and 
you know, some of my best friends have been in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and so they're kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to make anybody mad listening to this. I'm just saying, here's what we've got. We've got a bunch of people who are saying, I need to be perfect. I need to put sin out of my life, and if I sin, that means that I've lost my salvation, and I've got to start all over again. Mm-hmm. And this, is, this becomes a real tension in evangelicalism, because that I can point to Scripture in the New Testament, that would affirm that thought process. You know, be ye perfect as I am perfect. Yeah. Right? That's a pretty clear message from the Lord that uh, there is a responsibility for the pursuit of sinlessness in my life. Um, but you also have, uh, you know, going back deeper into our faith tradition, you've got a lot of people who really love Romans and, and really love Paul's letters. And you're saying, mm, that's an already not yet thing. And um, that, that doctrine, I need to live as though it is happening, even though it won't be perfected until eternity. And so that's just the, this is the pursuit of my heart until that day. But yeah. I will fail, and in my failure, I have grace. Right. Um, so you have that tension springing up here. Right, and we, and another, we tie another concept, another passage uh, from First John 1. You, know, you have verses 8, 9, and 10, where we have this uh, these... Uh, conditional statements you know if i say that i if i say that i haven't sinned um then the spirit of god isn't in me right if i confess my sin he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin but then it says if, if it says that i'm not a sinner then i'm a liar right mm-hmm. so it, it's as as calvinistic theologians from more the more calvinistic side of evangelicalism we would actually say that you're talking about Two different concepts of sin that you're talking about. Uh, you're talking about the the sin nature that that Christ has in an already not yet manner sure, taken the, care the, of. The old man of Ephesians and Colossians, like yeah, that that's gone. Right. But there's the daily putting on of the new man. Exactly. Right. Exactly. The uh, the washing of my feet mm-hmm. part that we talked about yesterday, going into communion. Right. Yeah. It's that it's that taking care of the daily sin thing. It's not. I don't need a bath. I just need my feet washed. Right. So, uh, yeah, so there's this tension. And then, you know, Seymour and the Pentecostal movement take it a step further. And and for many in that Pentecostal movement, they will say, if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not truly saved forever. Right, and that becomes a pretty divisive thought. Sure, sure. I mean, I... You even have a split within Pentecostalism because you can, you'll have individuals who, for example, the Assemblies of God, which is currently the largest church in the United States. Within the Assemblies of God, you're kind of splitting from many in the Pentecostal movement because you're saying, look, you don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. You know, yeah, it is a spiritual gift, not is, the spiritual gift. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you you got all kinds of shades here going on, but probably to identify all of this holy movement, holiness movement, you could actually use another term that uh, Amy Semple McPherson comes up with, and that is to talk about the four square gospel. Ah, the four square church. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, if you're talking about what that means, it has nothing to do with a bouncing ball. None, none that at all. That confused me for a long time. I thought that church sounded fun. Yes, yeah, yeah. Big red square, yeah. Red yeah. colored squares on the floor, and yeah. yeah, everybody goes. So, so the four, the fourfold gospel. It all deals with Jesus, and that is that uh, they identified themselves by these four tenets. The first is that Jesus is my Savior. 
The second is that Jesus is my sanctifier. So that's that second gift. That's that second blessing uh, part. But he's also, he's my healer. And, and all of these churches within this, within this movement, whether it's the Nazarene, the Pentecostal, the Assembly of God, uh, even the Christian and Missionary Alliance, see that there is an element here of Christian healing that can go on, and not just spiritual healing, but also physical healing, physical healing as well, that God heals an in, may heal an individual in their faith. Um, and then the last one, of course, is that Jesus is the soon-coming king. So mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely, I mean, you can see in those four square, I mean, there, there's a lot of those that I say, well, yeah, I kind of agree with those. They use terms like sanctifier, and I can say that Jesus is my sanctifier, um, it's just that it's not a separate a separated moment in my spiritual life. Right. The pro- I would say that process that process of sanctification begins at the day of my justification. Exactly. And it continues until my uh, until my um, uh, I was looking for another I O N word, but it, it continues. Glorification. glorification. There yeah. it is, man. Yeah. So so that that that's where I would come from. But they would say like those aren't like there's a moment. Yeah, where that begins or that happens. Um, I would still pray. I still pray for healing, um, physical, tangible healing for people. Um, but I'm, but the act, the process looks different in my world and in, in what I understand of scripture from somebody who would be in this four square movement. Right? I, I, I'm not necessarily. I, I remember in high school, I was a good friends with a guy whose whose father had jumped off of a bridge. Um, as a young man and into shallow water and spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. And um, just a, a great guy. I, I, I love this, this family. And, um, and you know, one, they're wonderful people who were part of our church. And, um, and I remember we were in a band. We were, playing in a, we were playing at this coffee house. And afterward, the, um, the owner of this coffee shop, who, come, who would come out of a holiness movement background, thought it was a good idea to, to lay hands on my friend's dad and pray for his healing. And there was a lot of discomfort in that room from all of us who come from a very different place on this idea. And we're like, no, that, that's a severed spine. And, you know, I, you know that, that, that healing in his walking will come in glory. Amen, yeah. But that, that's not, I don't think that's going to work right now. But we, we humored the man and, you know, we all kind of looked up from the prayer to see if Steve got out of the chair. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's possible. Sure. I, I've also traveled. I've also traveled, you know, a bit overseas into some developing countries, and there are stories of healing that are coming out of those developing countries that are beyond what I think uh, would you know beyond good medical explanation, um, and uh, that you know come because of people. Who passionately believe that the Holy Spirit can fi- can fix that problem and it gets fixed. So, sure. you know, so there's some tension in that here in our world, and a lot of that's springing up out of this era. Absolutely, absolutely, and that 
that tension even is a tension within the holiness movement because you do get a, I hate to say the word spectrum, but you get a spectrum on, on holiness. You get a, just a splotch where you can go from, you know, very strict Pentecostals who are, um, who, who will only baptize in the name of Jesus. You get baptized by immersion in the name of Jesus because you're expecting to be baptized by the Holy Spirit at another occasion. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's why a, a lot of times uh, they'll baptize and the person will spring up speaking t- in tongues because, oh, it, it all happened at once, which is just wonderful. And uh, I remember many years ago reading the book, uh, Run, Baby, Run. Very good book um, written by Nikki Cruz, who was a gang leader in New York City. Um, and is the founder of the uh, the Teen Challenge Ministries mm-hmm. ar- around the country, and uh, it's kind of the it's the other side of the story of David Wilkerson's The Cross and the Switchblade. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I remember reading in that book how uh, you know Nikki Cruz gets saved at a, a Wilkerson rally, and uh, and then yeah, he goes to a he goes to another room where for a, an extended period of time, um, he and those who just got saved uh, are praying, and their prayer is just, do it, Jesus, do it, Jesus, do it, Jesus. Hmm. And, and Nicky Cruz speaks about how he then speaks in tongues and knows that his salvation is firm. And that's the thing, is that, you know, they're looking for, they're not just, and now I get in trouble, right? Right. They're not just looking to be saved in the name of Jesus. And and I'm not I'm not trying to crush everybody's toes here. It, if you're AG, if you're charismatic, if you're Pentecostal, this may not be your understanding of your own theology. But in my study of your theology, here's the thing that I see, and that is that people they're looking for some confirmation of the work that Jesus has done. I understand that. I want that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, and I, I, I've over the years worked in ministry with countless people who have said, "Man, I, I prayed to receive Jesus at this camp or as a child, or you know, I walked forward in my 30s, or you know, whatever." I had these conversations with people who then go on to really question, "Am I really saved or not? Am I really, you know, does do I can I really expect heaven? Do I need to do something else?" I understand all of that tension, and so having a really clear answer to that is helpful. Like, well, when did you speak in tongues? Do you speak in tongues? It's really nice to, yeah. to say, yeah, well then, uh, well, you, if you speak in tongues, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have to be. Um, and uh, I don't necessarily have that. I, from where I'm seeing Scripture work, I can't necessarily point to that. What I point to is, hey, if you're doubting your salvation, nobody who is unsaved walks around worrying about whether or not they're saved. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like the, absolutely. The, the atheist does not go to a bed and stay awake sleepless thinking, oh man, I hope I'm not a Christian, right? But the person whose life has been changed by Jesus will spend some time being like, man, I, am, I believe this so thoroughly. I hope, it's, I, hope, I hope I'm actually in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a fellow in my church one time was from a Nazarene background. He, he came into my office and he was just, he, he, did, he told me about a sin in his life that had, um, just had a lot of control over his life. And, and in the process of that conversation, he was like, I just, I just don't know if I'm saved, preacher, because I keep, 
I keep going back to the same sin. And, and I don't understand why I do it. I confess it. And then I get saved again. And, and, it's, and, and I said, hang on a second. I said, you get saved again? He says, yeah. He says, I just don't know if I'm saved because I keep doing the same sin. And, uh, and I said, well, again, I use that very illustration. I said, how do you know it's sin? Mm -hmm. Why are you concerned? Why does this grieve you? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And, and it, in that conversation, he, he came to the realization. It was like, wow. So you're saying, I wouldn't be concerned about sin if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That convicts me of that sin and says that you're, you're doing the wrong thing. You need to change your walk. Because unbelievers don't care. Right. You know? Right. So this, this movement is springing up here at the turn of the century, and it, it, it's breathing a lot of life into the American church. Sure is. But you're also, now you're creating like some really serious division also, mm -hmm. um, because this is, I feel like this is one of those early moments. That, you know, some of those other moments in American history leading up to this is like, what do we do? Like, how do we interpret what God is doing in this particular space? Um, and we have these academic decisions that, you know, the ivory tower decides, like, mm, we're slightly different than you on this. Um, and so you create a new denomination because the ivory tower has said so, and that kind of funnels down. But now you have some things that, like, the average churchgoer is feeling and wrestling with. Like, the average churchgoer is walking into a room with people speaking in tongues and going to their pastor and saying, I don't know how to handle this. Right, I'm, right. I'm uncomfortable. Right. And so, so now you have a movement that really is starting to divide, not just at the academic level, but at the, at the, at the ground level. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's more of a grassroots movement by far. I mean, the, whole, the entire holiness movement is yeah. just very grassroots. Yeah. And, and so you have people who who are drawn to that and they gather together and meet and have their church and you have people who are who are not at all drawn to that and they have they have their separate churches as well and you have two different churches meeting in the same town on a Sunday morning. Yeah, and you know you bring up something else and that is that that also breeds a, a new heresy. Mm. Okay, and that new heresy is a is a Russellism. Um, or something we call Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, I was just saying, that's the kid from Up, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, yeah, right, right. It, basically the same guy, yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Russellism is, is just, it grows out of that whole grassroots stuff and uh, the idea that, that I should be able to spiritually interpret what God says and I don't need to listen to um, what pastors and clergy tell me. In fact, um, Russellism, Jehovah's Witnesses are are grievously anti-clergy. They they do not want others to tell you what the Bible says because they want to tell you what the Bible says. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And uh, you know, so uh, Russell was uh, and, and just an everyday guy and said that he translated the Bible from Greek on his own and. Interestingly, when he was he was being sued at one point in this whole process, and the uh, the uh, opposing uh, counsel handed him a Greek New Testament and asked him to translate on the spot, and he couldn't do it. 
So that was a that was a problem for them. But Jehovah's Witnesses, they're not springing out of the holiness movement. Don't get me wrong. It's just happening there, in the okay? same era. It's happening in the same era. It's a it's an aspect of this grassroots holiness spiritual desire that's springing up throughout the country in in the turn of the century. It's it's I, I want I want to know God. And the holiness movement is saying, well, I can help you know God in an experiential way. And the Russellites are saying, well, I can help you know God in a way that those clergymen are telling you you shouldn't have to know God. And, uh, you know, all you have to do is go from house to house and, and uh, tell people about a great man named Jesus and God in heaven named Jehovah and everything's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all of that's happening in that turn of the century. There's just this, and, and revivals. I mean, now you've got to have, now you not only have people like Billy Sunday who are taking like an evangelical message uh, on the revival route, but you also have a, a holiness revival movement as well springing up and coming the other way. You, you could have two tent meetings in the same town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Connecting two entirely different groups of people and, and growing the church in two different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and not to be, there's even a cultural issue here, a, a cultural dynamic. Um, I, I think that the evangelical message is a, a message to um, a, a predominantly white middle class Protestant um, hearing. Um, and, and you get some crossover from the holiness movement there with the Christian and Missionary Alliance and to some extent with the Nazarene. But the Pentecostal movement and the Assembly of God movement, that, that heart of the holiness movement is, is, is less focused on that, that white middle class culture. It, it has, it's offering hope to a class of people in the United States that do not have hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. William Seymour was a black man. Mm-hmm. Uh, the foundations of the foundations of the Pentecostal movement are are highly, highly integrated. Mm-hmm. It uh, you know you don't actually get the Assembly of God movement as a situation where um, um, I think there were thirty white pastors and thirty pastors of color who sat down and said we need. They sat down in Arkansas and they prayed through this and they said, we, we need to form something that will allow us to minister worldwide and in our nation. And that's the foundations of what would become the Assemblies of God movement. They're, they don't call themselves a church. They are the Assemblies of God. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a very broad structure within their movement. Um, they, I think they still have bishops because they come from that Methodist root. Uh, but there's that idea that we're bigger than color, and that's one of the moving factors. The assemblies of God—they're bigger than color, uh, but they also tend to, to focus, whether they choose to or not, on, on a group of people who um, are more economically challenged yeah. than others, right? Yeah. There's there's a there's a uh, almost a question of access and background right here, right? Like if you're if you're from a family that's more established and more comfortable, you can afford higher education. You can afford to go to like your middle school and high school all the way through to the end before you end up working. Right. Um, and so you have this cultivation of, um, of knowledge and the desire to pursue knowledge. 
Um, and so with that comes a uh, predisposition spiritually to, to gravitate toward that side of the spectrum also, right? Right. Like if right. I'm somebody who is highly educated and I enjoy reading classical works and I, 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 I like to work through and figure out ideas and play with ideas, um, then I'm also going to gravitate toward things like systematic theology and biblical theology and knowing my Bible and memorizing my Bible and memorizing the tenets of scripture and having all of this information um, that I can work with and then live from. But if I, if I grow up in a world where um, maybe you know, nobody makes it through middle school or elementary school before they have to go work the family farm or they have to you know, head to the coal mines or the factories, um, I'm not going to be necessarily as motivated by the, by the educational pursuit. I might be because I see it as something I'm lacking, but it's not necessarily going to be just who I am and how I process information. Um, and so because I process information differently uh, and I tend to process information experientially, then uh, a faith that is also very much experiential resonates with my heart. And so that is going to capture my attention probably a little bit faster than you know, somebody who's going to go up and stand in a pulpit and read his sermon full of great doctrinal truth. I might just lose that guy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that is a really great synopsis of, of where these things are going. Now, we're not saying, I mean, so we have doctrinal issues, right, with, with the Assembly of God and the Pentecostal movement, mm -hmm, all right? Mm -hmm. That we have doctrinal issues doesn't mean that it's bad or that we're bad. Right. It is, it is de definitely that second ring place of like... Um, we are distinctive and, and things that we can both point at scripture and say, mm, this is what I believe. Yeah, and some of and, our friends have just turned us off for right. saying that, but that's okay. Yeah. yeah, like I can point at scripture and say, mm, I, I think you're wrong because here. And they can in that same conversation be like, yeah, but I think you're wrong because of here. And so we can you know, have those deeper debates of difference based on scripture um, and our interpretation of it, but I think still enjoy eternity together. Um, but they're, but they're, they're different enough that our weekly fellowship as a single body becomes very challenging. Very. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, if somebody stood up and spoke in tongues here at Marsh Corner, I think that there would be a great, great pause and silence after that of just, wow, what do we do with that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, yeah. we look for some interpretation and then, yeah. Kinda... <laughs> and you know, it, it, yeah, it would just be a very, very uncomfortable moment mm -hmm. for the way we worship. Um, by the same token, you know, some folks from that spiritual background may come and be with us and say, man, these are so boring. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, I feel that sometimes too. Well, true, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is... This becomes a real challenge in the American church, this, this distinction. Um, and, and you really start to see um, two very large branches that create smaller branches in yeah. the American church. Yeah. Um, and we've had that leading into this point already also. But, you know, when, when you start to see this, um, that, you know, you, first you have the um, salvation piece. Is salvation something that... Um, is, is once for, for all, and is it something that, like, once I believe in this, then I am sealed, and, um, and I can't jump out of any hands, you know, to use scripture reference. John um, 10. 
Yeah. So, you know, is that the camp you're in or are you in the camp of mm, if you're a sinner, then you've, you know, you need to be resaved. Like those are, those are very, very distinctive branches that create division in the American church. Yeah. But then you also add on top of that, this other layer of um, what's the Holy Spirit's role? Is the Holy, does the Holy Spirit still function in these sign gifts, these, these you know, public healings, you know, physical healings? Does the Holy Spirit um, still move people to speak in other tongues? Does the Holy Spirit um, still give revelation um, or and, not? And that's very important in this whole deal. Yeah. Because um, those of us from the evangelical side of the, of the ledger, uh, for us... Um, we we would talk we would talk about ourselves as being something called a single source theology, where uh, our theology is based upon just scripture and what scripture says. Whereas in perspective, when we look at the holiness movement, we're, we're seeing a dual source theology. Yeah. Where, uh, yeah, I'm I'm supportive of scripture and scripture is inerrant and infallible, and I, I think just about every single holiness group would uh, would affirm that scripture is inerrant and infallible just like we do but then what the holy spirit says to you or to me in a specific situation or revelation or somebody stands up and speaks in tongues and there's a new there's a new revelation of god um that's that's a hard thing for a lot of us in evangelicalism to handle yeah and and that comes to where we as evangelicals would talk about apostolic authority, and we point to apostolic authority as coming from the people who actually spent time at the feet of Jesus. Right. And, and so without those you know, first-generation capital A apostles, you can't have new revelation. And so we would say our canon or our, our set of texts that are infallible is closed. And what we now have is the, the Holy Spirit working in us and in the church to illuminate that closed canon. Exactly. Um, whereas um, on the other side of that, you still have apostles um, and your, your apostles can still bring new revelation. It can't conflict with scripture necessarily, um, but it can lead to new directions in what is supposed to happen and what the church is supposed to do and what individuals are supposed to do. And there is a lot of emphasis in understanding a word from the Holy Spirit. Um, and that gains as much of a... Um, a priority or an emphasis in the in the way that a church works, as actual scripture does. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, so that becomes a real challenge. And so you have, you know, and that's why you have in a lot of these um, these uh, these churches, you have like the primary apostle in that church, who is often, you know, the pastor or the pastor pastor and his wife as a team, or or um, or or her husband as a team right and you have um you know they're they're apostles and you have these elders who function as apostles sure and you are you are listening to what they say and you're raising them even to this level of importance which is fun because you think about a lot of the holiness movement coming out of a place that's um, a little bit flatter in terms of hierarchy but what it creates over time is this uh this pastor who becomes an apostle who now is over us and has some authority, an extra authority from God. Exactly. And we, the, the, the evangelical church kind of goes the other way, where, where pastors tend to have, well, like, I'm just another servant among servants, and you know, I've, I have this training, but we are here together as co-equal heirs of Christ. Right. Well, that goes back 
not not to relaunch things here because we're already you know, yeah we're, 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 we're already nearing the, the end here. Right? But yeah. just just tie this back history wise, right? All of these churches, all of these holiness churches, are coming out of the Methodist movement. The Methodist movement comes out of the Anglican movement. Anglicans and Methodists are s- still support apostolic succession. Mm-hmm. So a bishop, a cardinal, if you were in Roman Catholicism, still speaks for God. Right. Whereas in the evangelical side of things, in the more Protestant side of things, the Presbyterian, Baptist, uh, Reformed circle, um, the Bible speaks for God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really where that line of demarcation right. falls. So those are our early up on the tree branches that create these further branches down the road is where we are now. Yeah. And so this, you know, as you're listening to us now, you're hearing a lot more about that Wesleyan branch um, where you know, becomes really a very healthy, vibrant branch and still is today, right? Like that you're saying, you know, the AOG is still, the Assemblies of God is still the l- largest um, group of believers in the United States and, uh, you know, s- um, surpassing the Methodist church, um, which, you know, it's that same branch. And then you have this other branch that, that our history comes from a little bit more with that, um, with that more reformed thinking and, and, not reformed isn't better, but just that that you know historical term, right? You know, so right. the and Baptist, that's the Southern Baptists. The, the Southern Baptists quite often become yep. the largest branch. They they battle with the AOG, if you will, for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for membership and yep. uh, who's the largest this year. It might be the Southern Baptists, and next year it's the Assemblies of God, right. and Back and forth, right, so. right, 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 right. So those are those are two big wings that happen at the turn of the century. Nineteen hundred, we're seeing all of this. Um, explode across the United States as everything else seems to do as well. Um, and you know, remember we, when we finish this, we're talking about wagons heading to Oregon, and at you know toward the end of this era, you have Wright brothers flying in France. Yeah, and so you have you know a radical change in what happens in the United States. Alexander Graham Bell brings in the the telephone, and then he starts to be a, a Wright brothers competitor in flight. Right, you have all of this stuff going on, and, and, and technology is exploding. Um, the mechanization of factories is exploding. Here in our area, you have the, um, the mills, which are creating all of the fabrics and textiles and all of these factories and women working in them. Um, and, and so the, the United States is just this incredible place of change. Um, new immigrants coming in constantly through Ellis Island, spreading through the United States, um, whether that's this Catholic uh, reemergence or, or like you talked about the Lutherans who are moving up into Minnesota and other areas in the United States. So it's, a, it's an incredible changing tapestry. And with that, all of this faith is evolving and, and moving. And it's hard to track it all even. And to, you know, we could go down this same long conversation really about any one of these things. But I think the core piece of this time period to know is that there's just radical change. Yeah. And, and with that, with all of these radical changes comes new belief and, and, and new ways of understanding what God is doing. And, and really, whenever you have that, you have somebody who says, uh-uh. And so you create a division, you create an argument, and you create a new church or a new denomination. You might have two Baptist churches because people disagree, but you also have um, a lot of these new denominations that are sparking and growing and beginning in this early 1900 era. Um, so after that, we'll, we'll, we'll hit, you know, a lot, again, like 
the 1900s are an amazing time in American history and in world history. Uh, we're approaching a great war. Uh, then we, we have a depression. Um, and we then have a second great war. And those things transform the entire world. And um, they certainly transform what we think about faith. I think, you know, the, great, the first great war changes what we think about the end times yes. and how we interpret Revelation. And we can get into some of those conversations yeah. in the future. And next week, we'll probably be dealing with uh, the rise of fundamentalism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that whole controversy. Right, the fundamentals and the, uh, the fundamentals of the faith, which responds to some of these, like, new, new um, the, um, uh, the Jesus movement or this, the, the, the new school on Jesus. There's like several of those that happen out of, you know, the educational world that, you know, these new studies of who Jesus is that aren't what we, you know, what the church has traditionally thought about Jesus. So a lot of that starts to rise up here. So we'll hit that as we come and uh, as we come back to you and uh, um, hopefully continue to unlock this, uh, this, this huge question of what do we do as a church and how do we get along? Um, but we hope you get along with us. We want you to share um, and uh, let people know about the, the podcast. Send it to, off to a friend who you've had these conversations with. In fact, what I would love is if you listen to this, sent it off to a friend for them to listen, and then you grab a coffee with them and just chat about what God is doing in the world and what you see him doing. Because I think the more we understand about how God has acted in the past, and the better we can think about how we're supposed to act now. And if we can see the way God has moved in his people um, and challenged his people, um, then we can start to like, apply that to our own lives and say, man, how's God challenging me? Where am I growing? What am I supposed to do as a follower of Jesus? Because that's ultimately the question. The question, you know, we, we ask this question, how do churches get along? But I think the big question is, how do you, as a follower of Jesus, better do so? How do you, as a follower of Jesus, better walk with him? And how do you function with other people who claim to be followers of Jesus, too? So send it to one of those people. Have a conversation. Um, you know, subscribe to the podcast in your format of choice. Leave us a review. That's hugely helpful. And uh, we'll see you when we come back next week. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Inside the Pastor's Study Podcast, hosted by Pastors George and Jeremy Stevens. Cover art by Caitlin Gallagher, music by Sammy Kay. To find out more about us, head to marshcorner.com.